This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I'll be talking today about COVID-19 testing, surveillance, and diagnosis. And indeed, um, my talk will be these three parts. We'll be focusing on kind of essentially what are um, critically important diagnostic efforts. You know, how do we diagnose a novel disease? You know, how did we ramp up testing and, and uh, where are there lessons learned? And indeed, I can already tell you the answer is yes. Uh, that we learned a lot from um, from having to face essentially uh, a pandemic, um, and you know what what makes this this whole thing rather um, uh, r- rather striking to me is the fact that we've 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 gone through pandemics before. I mean, we've gone through uh, two thousand nine H one N one influenza. Um, if you recall, um, we we were there was a brief period of time with the SARS coronavirus pandemic. Uh, you may have heard of MERS coronavirus. There was some worry about avian influenza. Uh, Zika virus. Uh, there was a worry about Ebola, potentially that Ebola could spread beyond uh, Africa, and and yet um, I think this is um, this is probably uh, the um, kind of the pandemic we were actually waiting for or that we were expecting, um, in that it, it's really had global reach and having like societal wide impacts, and, and and unfortunately I think the take home message and you'll get that is that we've had to move very, very quickly with respect to, diag- to developing these diagnostics and, and developing these. And um, in some ways, I, I sort of regret that many of these were not in place already. Uh, and it, it's, a, it's due to a number of factors. I mean, traditionally, you know, no, public health has been uh, rather kind of the, the funding and the resources available for public health surveillance and for pandemic uh, pathogen discovery or, or tracking pandemics and monitoring pandemics has been very limited. Um, and it's, it's been essentially what happens is the funding is usually available in the middle of a pandemic, but once the pandemic's over, then it dries up. And, and it's my hope that, that this sort of um, incomplete sort of uh, you know, sporadic funding um, issues and having incomplete resources and being unprepared, um, it's, it's my hope that COVID-19 is really, is really, a, really changed, is going to change kind of the way we approach pandemics in the future. Uh, but I'll be focused, to, focused today on diagnostic testing. And I want to begin with some disclosures. I do get research support for pathogen discovery from Abbott. And I'm also on the scientific advisory board for Mammoth Biosciences. Um, and both of these are relevant um, and as I'll go through this material. Um, so we'll be focused on kind of three main uh, aims of our ongoing studies. One is I'll describe the development of a CRISPR-based diagnostic test for SARS coronavirus 2. Um, and we're hoping to develop this as a faster, cheaper, portable, and scalable test while really retaining the accuracy of gold standard testing, which is really PCR. Um, we want to have, provide the capacity of doing you know, more than 10,000 tests a day per lab. So it's really an ambitious goal. And um, we also want to develop ways that we can do point of care or, or at even at home testing. So point of care settings would be, for instance, um, you know, at a drive through um, testing site uh, in a clinic, in the emergency department, or, you know, potentially at home where you could collect your sample and in the future, maybe even be able to test your own sample. Um, I'll then go into um, another sort of uh, approach, which is doing genomic surveillance of SARS coronavirus 2. And the idea behind genomic surveillance is that we want to sequence the genome of the virus that is infecting any individual patient. And why do we want to do this? Well, 
what happens is coronaviruses, just like any other viruses, will mutate over time. And uh, what's, what's interesting about coronaviruses is actually they have a protein that sort of corrects their, um, corrects some of the um, mutations that arise naturally from, from every repl rep replicating event of, of the virus. And so, so what happens is uh, the take-home message is that this virus mutates very slowly. And what that means is that by sequencing the genome, it, it essentially is a molecular fingerprint by which we can not only understand like what you were infected by, but we can get some insights into like, where did the virus come from? Where did it originate? How is it spreading in the community? And what is going to happen to the virus? What is going to be the fate of the viral lineages or the strains that are being spread? Um, and uh, you, as you might imagine, uh, this could be very useful. And indeed, I'll give you some data to show that this is really useful for assisting public health contact tracing. So contact tracing, the idea behind it is you, once you diagnose someone with having been infected with COVID-19, being infected with SARS, with the SARS coronavirus, coronavirus 2, the idea is you want to um, um, uh, identify all of the people that they've been, that he or she has been in contact with over the past, you know, up to two weeks uh, during the incubation period. The idea behind it is then you can test all of that person's, uh, his or her close contacts. And, and, it, and it actually continues. And, and then once you identify those contacts, then you know, potentially if they're infected, then you then identify their contacts. And the idea behind contact tracing, it's a very powerful tool. And in fact, it's one of the only tools that we can really use to guide kind of how we're gonna contain the virus. Uh, the, the idea is that patients who are, or individuals who are in, identified as having been exposed, uh, they typically um, get placed in 14 days of self-quarantine, or um, if they become symptomatic, they, they then get um, you know, evaluated cl clinically, and if, if they become sick, they get them into the hospital. But either way, the goal of doing the genomic surveillance is to help identify who's infected and where did they get infected from and to identify essentially the networks or the pathways of transmission. Another, um, util another use of genomic surveillance is by sequencing the viral genomes is that you can better understand how the virus is spreading. And I'll give you some very concrete examples of how the virus spread in California. How was the virus introduced in California, for instance, in March uh, or in, in January, February, March, when, when the pandemic began in the United States? Um, and and the, kind of the third reason is that you can use a viral genomic surveillance to track how the virus is mutating and evolving over time. And this is really important uh, primarily because um, viruses, uh, in, in most cases, when they mutate, it doesn't really affect the properties of the virus, like how transmissible it may be or how the kind of disease it might cause. Um, it's very unlikely, for instance, that viruses can mutate to become more severe or more deadly or more virulent. Um, on the other hand, there now is some actually some, some fairly um, strong data, and, and this is not proven yet, but there's some strong data to suggest that the virus may have mutated to acquire one mutation that may be more transmissible. And I'll give you some, in other words, it may have mutated to become more infectious. And I'll give you some uh, data, some genomic data to sort of um, bolster this hypothesis. Um, I then wanna end by talking uh, about kind of new diagnostics. And so the idea behind this is we want to not only diagnose SARS coronavirus 2, but now we actually want to kind of take the next step, which is not only identifying whether you may be infected with SARS coronavirus 2, but we wanna determine whether or not you're, um, you would be 
one of the, um, you would potentially develop more severe disease. So uh, we want to develop a test that can not diagnose the, the virus. We already have, you know, tests for that. We want to develop a test that can predict severity. We can uh, a test perhaps that if you're infected, can I predict whether or not you will go on to being, uh, you know, the small percentage of people who, who would need to be admitted to the hospital, who may need oxygen support, who may become critically ill from the disease. And, and I think this is really important because um, we already know that there's a very high asymptomatic infection rate. Um, and so depending on the study that you're looking at, you know, 20, 20 to 50% of people who are infected have no symptoms at all. Um, and, and, and the fraction of individuals who develop severe disease requiring hospitalization is actually pretty low. Uh, and even lower than that is the fraction of, of patients who die from the disease, who develop critical illness. But, but the key question is why is it that some people do, do fine with the disease or at least do, you know, do well, some, some people may need to be completely asymptomatic for instance, whereas other individuals who are infected develop critical illness and may die from the illness. So I'll, I'll talk about some diagnostics that we're developing that may provide us um, some insights into, into that question. So we'll start with testing. Um, this is a very busy side. And the only reason I wanna point out this slide is this is, gives you an example of kind of the, the challenge that we had early in March when we wanted to develop tests for the, for the virus. So we were faced not only with uh, the fact that we have all of these manufacturers that are very rapidly within the course of weeks developing tests for the virus, but, but the key question is that because everybody was trying to develop tests and everyone was trying to expand testing, we ended up with critical reagent shortages. Um, early on, we didn't have reagents to do the extraction step, for instance, to take a, a nasal swab and be able to convert that to DNA or RNA. Uh, that's called extraction. So we were missing extraction reagents. We didn't have, uh, we, we then ran out of PCR reagents. We ran out of reagents to actually run the amplification tests that can actually detect the virus. Um, and, and then, you know, later on, we even ran out of swabs. We ran out of the actual swab, swabs that we could use. We had to import uh, swabs from China, in fact, um, in, in March. Um, and then later on, we even ran out of the storage material, the, uh, what they call the, the transport media that you put the swab in. So we actually ran out of that precious media. And so what, what this is, uh, what the slide is meant to show is what you see on the slide is this is a study where we directly compared the performance of eight different assays or seven different assays in this case. Um, and the idea is to compare, you know, which assay is more sensitive or specific than the other. Um, the take home message is that all of them are roughly the same or equivalent. Um, however, we've had to actually bring up all of these assays. Um, and, and the part of the reason why we had to bring up all of these assays is simply because we were running out of reagents. You know, we would have like we would run, for instance, the Panther instrument for two weeks, and then we would get a, a note from the manufacturer, a notice from the manufacturer that there were no reagents left, there were no tips left to run the assay, or maybe there are no reagents left. So then we switched to the Abbott M2000, then we found out a few weeks later we ran, ran our reagents for that, or it could then we switched to the, some other methods. So um, I, I want to just show you though. Uh, Another aspect of this is that you can see that there are some large uh, manufacturers who generate these, these huge instruments that you see on the lower left. So for instance, you have Hologic, which makes the Panther Fusion, you have Abbott, uh, which makes the uh, Abbott M2000, and then you have the Roche, uh, Roche, which makes the Roche Cobos. 
instruments. You see, these are huge instruments. They're expensive. They cost anywhere from five hundred thousand to a million dollars. I mean, th these are um, um, th these are great re great instruments to use um, if you have sufficient reagents. But you know, we were in the situation where we were purchasing a one million dollar instrument and we didn't have any reagents to actually run the test on. So th this was a big problem. Um, uh, subsequently, a few a few weeks later, then we uh, started to see tests that were available for these more portable instruments. So what you see on the upper right, I give you some examples of them. Um, so you see like the Diasorin Simplexa instrument, which is the, kind of the upper uh, the left on um, left side of the upper right uh, side, and then you also see. Um, the uh, Eplex, the Genmark Eplex instrument. So there are other instruments that were available. Uh, and notably, I should also point out uh, probably the one instrument that's different from these other instruments is the Abbott ID Now. And the key difference with the Abbott ID Now instrument is that it's an instrument that runs a sample, runs it directly from the uh, the sample. So you can actually collect the sample, put it in the instrument, and get a result very quickly within 15 minutes. The reason you're able to get a result within 15 minutes is this is the only instrument that does not use PCR. So PCR stands for polymerase chain amplification, uh, sorry, polymerase chain reaction. It's a method of amplifying using thermal, using a thermocycler. Um, it typically takes about at least two to three hours to run PCR. Um, so if you want to run a PCR assay, um, you, 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 if you want to run the assay in say less than 30 minutes, uh, you're, you can't use um, a PCR method. You actually have to use something like the Abbott ID now. Um, at the time, the Abbott ID now was the only instrument. Um, the one caveat though with the Abbott ID now is that instrument can only run one sample at a time per instrument. And each instrument costs around you know, $15,000. So you might imagine this is not a good way to, to test hundreds of samples. I mean, you're going to have to order or be able to um, achieve high throughput, test many samples in parallel. So what we wanted to do here is we wanted to develop, you know, can we develop an assay that can that's cheaper, that doesn't require these large, huge instruments, bulky instruments, uh, that can run the test, say, within 30 minutes um, like the Abbott ID now, but can also run multiple tests at a time. So this is kind of what we're aiming for. Um, so what we quickly went to is we quickly went to what we call an isothermal method. And so um, it, if you recall, what I just said is that PCR is a gold standard for doing testing. And, and indeed, it is a gold standard. I mean, nearly all of the tests except for ID now use PCR. The Abbott ID now does use an isothermal method. Um, uh, I, I present kind of two isothermal methods. They're called LAMP and RPA. Um, you don't really have to know the details about them. It suffices to say by isothermal, what I mean to say is that you can run the entire reaction at a single temperature. And that becomes, uh, that's actually really important because you don't need, for instance, a fancy instrument that can cycle through temperatures that can go from high to low to high to low to cycle through multiple uh, temperatures at a time, you can use, you can simply like put the instrument, in some cases you can even run it, run the reaction at room temperature, just, you know, run it on the bench top, or you can uh, run it on the tabletop, or you could potentially just put it into a, like an incubator, like an oven, and, and just get your reaction done. Um, the other advantage, another advantage of using an isothermal method, which you see on the right, is that the test can be rapid. Typically, they can be done in 10 to 30 minutes. Uh, the yield is very, very good, in some cases even better than PCR. And you can do what we call visual detection. By visual detection, what I mean is that when the reaction's done, you can actually put a strip into it, uh, like you would do a urine pregnancy test, and you would get a result. So it would be, it's really that simple. Um, and the other thing which is critical 
is that it's very tolerant to inhibitors. And what inhibitors are, they're substances in the um, kind of the matrices that we're looking at, whether it's saliva or nasal swabs, there's like substances in your secretions that can kind of inhibit the reaction. So this is why nearly all PCR methods, they require you to do extraction. In other words, you have to go from the sample to the RNA. And, and then, the, then, you have, then you run the PCR reaction. Um, on the other hand, if you use an isothermal reaction, you can actually bypass this extraction step. So it, it really becomes a sample to answer solution. And I also want to mention that we want to harness the power of CRISPR here. And uh, I think it's, it's rather uh, timely that, um, uh, that Dr. Jennifer Doudna from, uh, and Emmanuel Carpent Carpentier from, um, uh, and Jennifer, uh, Dr. Doudna from UC Berkeley um, was one of the two scientists who uh, won the uh, Nobel Prize in Chemistry this year for, the, for inventing CRISPR. Um, and so you may have heard of CRISPR uh, with respect to gene editing. It's been, there's a lot of excitement about using CRISPR as a way to edit and modify genes um, and potentially be able to cure a wide variety of diseases and ev even uh, be able to uh, treat infectious diseases and cancer by simply manipulating uh, essentially using uh, kind of the CRISPR uh, the CRISPR um, approach, which is, you can think of it as a molecular scissors that allows you to pre precisely target genes. Uh, but the same uh, ability to precisely target genes by gene editing can also be used for diagnostics. And so uh, let, me, um, let me kind of briefly describe with this slide here. So the idea behind using CRISPR for diagnostics is that you can take any clinical sample whether it's a nasal swab, saliva, stool, or blood. And the idea behind it is that you would basically put it through a, CAS, a CRISPR-Cas reaction. Um, now, um, what's interesting is that the CRISPR system, you, you design in the CRISPR system, you design these guide RNAs. Uh, so what CRISPR is, it's really a, a way that uh, we're leveraging kind of a, a, an antiviral or an anti infection system that, that was evolved in bacteria naturally. And so what we're doing here is we uh, were able to sort of use this technique to develop guide RNAs that can precisely target uh, what we're looking for. So in this case, uh, we wanna look for SARS coronavirus too. So we can design specific guide RNAs. You can think of them as molecular probes that can identify the virus and be able to pick out the virus directly from clinical samples. So that's kind of the beauty of CRISPR. Uh, some of the work that was done in Jennifer Doudna's lab uh, was able to show that there's one enzyme called Cas12A, which functions in the CRISPR system. But there's one enzyme, Cas12A has another interesting property, is not only can it identify these specific targets using guide RNAs, you, it, it then, uh, once it's activated, once it's identified the target, it then acts as a scissors, it actually cuts single-stranded DNA. So the, what's, inter what's interesting is that you can then couple essentially the guide RNAs to detect the virus. And then you add these single-stranded DNA probes. And what happens is as the Cas, when the Cas12A protein is, is activated, it then cuts those probes and it produces a signal. So the, the beauty of this is that it can not only specifically detect SARS coronavirus 2, but once it detects it, it can, it can basically generate a fluorescent signal that can be easily detectable, either using um, you know, a lateral flow strip, like a urine pregnancy strip, or, or using a, like a machine to measure fluorescence. Um, and there are a lot of applications, as you might imagine, for this, for diagnostics. I mean, it, it can, I can identify, in principle, any virus, any bacterium, any fungus, any parasite. And we're actually thinking of using this to, um, 
to develop like, uh, like a pan pathogen test, a test that can identify any infection, for instance, using CRISPR. Uh, but, um, uh, in, in, and it can also identify, for instance, things like tumor cells to identify cancer. And I'll, I'll show you later that you can even identify host genes. So when I talk about host response-based tests, um, and if you look there on the right, you can kind of see all of the potential applications of using CRISPR as, as a system for diagnostics. Um, but I want to say that we uh, rapidly developed essentially a CRISPR-Cas-based way, an assay or a test to diagnose or detect SARS coronavirus 2. So this test actually is, is, can be run directly from the clinical sample. It uses an isothermal amplification method that we just went over, and it uses CRISPR as a way to read out the result. Um, so this was uh, published in, in, um, in March, actually, um, in, oh, sorry, in April in Nature Biotechnology. And I'll give you some idea of the timeline. Uh, we actually initiated this collaboration with Mammoth Biosciences. Um, so I'm the scientific advisory board for Mammoth. Mammoth is, Biosciences is actually a spin out, a spin off of um, Jennifer Doudna's lab. Uh, she's actually the um, head of the scientific advisory board for Mammoth. But I collaborated, uh, initiated a collaboration with, with Mammoth in, in, in March, in, well, actually in, in, in this case, in like, in like late January. And within 12 days, we were able to get to the point that we had a functioning assay. So it, it gives you kind of some of the power of CRISPRs because the technique is so flexible is that you can develop essentially what they call programmable diagnostics. So as soon as as soon as this virus, as soon as we had the sequence of the virus, and in fact, the sequence of the virus was only released, I believe, in mid-January. So we had the sequence of the virus about seven days before we were able to uh, order the probes and, and get the test up and running. Um, and this is why CRISPR is so attractive. We were able to show, for instance, that the, the probes themselves that we're using are exquisitely specific. So this gives you an example. What you see here is this is called a multiple sequence alignment. So what you see on the middle part of the, of the screen, you can kind of see the sequence of the guide RNA. It's basically abbreviated gRNA. You can basically see that uh, I'm taking, uh, we, we develop probes against uh, not only SARS coronavirus 2, but against the two closest related coronaviruses in the database. One is a bat coronavirus and one is SARS coronavirus 1. And you can see that uh, because there are these mismatches in the probes, that we can easily distinguish between SARS coronavirus 2 and these other related, closely related uh, coronaviruses. Uh, in fact, all the data that we have so far suggests that using a CRISPR method effectively gives you 100% specificity. So you don't have any false positives, um, at least not from the assay itself. And, and this is critical, as you might expect, because um, you know, we've we as well as other hospitals have had cases of you know of SARS coronavirus two in the hospital, and in in some cases there are false positives. I mean, it's as the result of the assay itself, um, and you know, having a test that potentially can give you no false positives or 100% specificity is is really important. Um, so, um, and in fact, we can um, the the specificity is so exquisite that even though I show you, you see there in pink, there are roughly seven different uh, mutations. Um, it can actually detect a single mutation. So a single position nucleotide in the sequence is enough for, for us to distinguish between SARS coronavirus 2 and SARS coronavirus 1. So ultimately what we ended up doing is developing, and this was published, a CRISPR-based test for SARS coronavirus 2. Um, so the idea is um, this was where we, we can either start for nasopharyngeal swab, we can, we can extract or choose not to extract, uh, but then the idea is to run it through this reaction. And notably, the whole reaction can be run in 30 minutes. 
And then what you do is uh, when, this, when the uh, reaction's done, uh, you then put a strip in and you read out the result within two minutes. And you can see there, it, it really is just like a, like a urine pregnancy test strip where um, you, know, you see the control line, that means that, um, that means that the reaction worked. And then you see the test line, if you see a band in the test region, uh, then it's positive, otherwise negative. And what you see here are two results. Uh, the, the top band is, is a positive test and the bottom band is a, um, sorry, the, the, the top strip is a positive test and the bottom strip is a negative test. And subsequently, we were even able to obtain um, FDA emergency use authorization. So we obtained FDA authorization to actually run this test, um, and it had excellent performance. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to go over all the detail, but, but it had 95% um, sensitivity and 100% specificity, as I said before, because it uses CRISPR relative to gold standard PCR. I, I now want to talk about, like, though, how are we expanding? How are we taking this to the next level? So um, um, one thing is that we really wanted to accelerate the throughput. So as I said before, we want to get to the point where we can analyze 5,000 to 10,000 samples a day. Um, so how do we do this? Well, one way to do it is to really simplify the extraction preparation. So uh, we, we basically, instead of extracting material, we ended up doing a five-minute lysis and, and 95 degree heat inactivation step. So essentially what we can do is we can actually run the sample, run, run the reaction directly from original sample. Uh, we want to have the ability to multiplex targets, and I won't be showing you some data, but we've now added, for instance, probes so that we can simultaneously detect flu influenza and COVID-19. And you might expect that that might be important because uh, influenza season is coming. We don't know how bad it's going to be. And so, but we do know that it's going to be concurrent with the, with the, with the need to do COVID testing. So it would be ideal if you had a, a single test that could look for both at the same time, so you don't have to run two tests. And then finally, we wanted to make it compatible with running you know, 384 well plates. We wanted to be able to run you know, multiple um, you know, plates at a time. Um, so this gives you an idea of what we're how we're developing the assay. Uh, the idea is to collect samples. And uh, so the other kind of key advance is that we want to be able to run the samples from saliva. We really want to be able to run actually saliva samples um, so that we don't have to basically stick the nasal swab all the way up your nose anymore, um, which is very uncomfortable. And you know, there are a lot of concerns also regarding, as I said before, about supplies of swabs, et cetera. It would be far simpler if you could simply spit into a tube and we could run the test. Um, so the idea is then to aliquot them out into like plates, uh, 96 well with 84 well plates, incubate, and then read out the results. Uh, so this is called like high throughput testing. Uh, this is another way to look at it. So our idea is collect the sample, put them into a sample plate, transfer it to a lamp plate. Uh, we can use a robotic handler or we can do it manually, uh, incubate all these plates in the oven at the same time, and then read out the signal. Um, so this gives you some idea of some of the data. So we've actually run this with both uh, uh, comparing uh, QRT-PCR, which is the PCR method on the left. That's the gold standard. Uh, we, we've actually end up using two different dyes to kind of read out the results. But I think the take-home message is that we're able to get essentially the same sensitivity, in this case, four copies of the virus per reaction we're able to detect with all three of these methods. 
And this is some other data to suggest that we can detect, say within 20 minutes, we can detect the signal from either nasal swab on the left or saliva. So it works as well on nasal swabs as well as saliva. So this is kind of a summary of the assay performance. We appear, it appears to be comparable to gold standard PCR. It's inexpensive. We estimate it's about $10 per test. I've been in discussions with the company making the reagents, which is NEB, uh, New England Biosciences. Uh, they're telling me that if, if produced in bulk, it can be down to $2, $2 a test. Uh, the idea is to make it simple and automatable, um, you know, lots of samples per run. And importantly, it's really a one-pot solution. So we don't have to do um, a lot of steps like extraction, you know, running PCR. It's, it's, and you can get results within about 30 minutes. And, um, and I should also mention that we're about to start actually a surveillance program at UCSF. Uh, this, is, this will hopefully be supported by the chancellor's office. But the goal is to screen um, all of our child care facilities um, at UCSF, all of the faculty and students, and to do regular screening of, of you know, high-risk individuals who may be exposed, um, and to uh, do screening two to three times a week, which we would be able to do if we had um, this assay uh, up and running. I, I want to go into some other work, and so this is work that's done in collaboration with Dr. Adam Abate, who is a bioengineering professor at UCSF. Um, they have an interesting method called digital droplet PCR. Um, I, I don't really have time to talk too much about it. Suffice it to say, it's, it's a really interesting approach where in, instead of doing kind of regular PCR, where you do PCR of, from, the, from the whole sample, what it does, uh, what, what we do here is we actually convert the sample into these droplets. You basically add some emulsifier like an oil and, and you basically essentially make droplets. Um, and what happens is you can think of the droplets as microfactories. Each of the droplets is actually doing the PCR. And, but what you can do is that based on the droplets, you can simply count the droplets and you can get very, very sensitive estimates and very precise estimates of how much virus you actually have. So it, it can not only tell you, for instance, whether you have the virus and be very sensitive at that for detecting the virus, it can give you a good indication of how much virus is actually in your sample. And it, it, we've been able to show that this is exquisitely sensitive. In some ways, um, it's actually more sensitive than PCR is. Um, and so the, the other thing that's kind of interesting about it is that you could also develop this as a true point of care test, where again, you're taking the sample, you're putting it into a tube, you shake, and then you take a look at the result and you can actually read the result as a fluorescent result on the smartphone, uh, as you can see on the, on the right. And I can show you some, we actually set up a very crude setup, but this gives you some idea of the specificity. So um, what you see is um, you can see very clearly that for SARS-CoV-2 is that, you know, it's positive. You can see that each of those positive like uh, blobs is actually one positive, uh, one positive viral uh, genome that was detected using this technique, where if you compare it to SARS coronavirus one or MERS coronavirus or a human control or a control, you'll see that there's no fluorescence. You can't see those, those, those droplets. Um, and this gives you some idea of the specificity. So we're actually diluting in this case, very uh, several down to like uh, more than a million times. And you can see here that you know, we can actually detect uh, the, the virus, you can still see the droplets even down to a 10 to the minus five dilution or 10 to the fifth dilution. And e essentially this is about 
10 to 100 times more sensitive than gold standard PCR. Uh, but what really makes this exciting is that you can, um, and this is another way of looking at it to show that uh, the data appears to be comparable. But what's really exciting is that you can set it up to that you can do the readout on an iPhone. So we're comparing here um, kind of the iPhone with an Evo instrument, which an Evo is a very fancy fluorescence instrument. It's about a 10K fluorescence instrument. But you can see here that we can actually get similar data by just simply scanning the fluorescence using a, a, a special kind of a cartridge that we sort of add to the iPhone. So you can do iPhone scanning of your result. So I think it would be fantastic you know, if this could be developed into a point of care test and we're uh, doing some more efforts in that direction. Okay, I want to switch to kind of switch gears and move on to genomic sequencing. Um, so this is actually quite exciting. Um, we actually reported in Science um, several months ago um, how the virus was entered uh, Northern California. And one thing that we, uh, one thing that was a key finding of this paper was that there were multiple introductions of the virus in Northern California, and it gives you some kind of interesting lessons as to like how is the virus introduced and how is it being spread. Um, so this sort of summarizes, it's a very busy slide, but I want you to focus on just a few things. One is in this study, we looked at samples from multiple counties, as you can see on the upper left, multiple counties, we sampled basically the virus and we were able to sequence the genomes from the virus. Um, and in addition, um, if you recall, there was actually the Grand Princess cruise ship, uh, which went on a trip first to uh, Mexico and, and then went on a trip to Hawaii. Um, and essentially there was an outbreak aboard the ship. And if you recall, the, actually the ship was actually docked for a period of time off the, um, in the, in the uh, port of Oakland where um, the passengers were, were unable to actually disembark um, because, uh, because there, were, uh, there was concern that there was widespread uh, transmission going on going in the ship. So we wanted to look at essentially sequences, genomic sequences, um, corresponding to, to each of these samples from samples from different counties and also from the cruise ship. Uh, what you see on the left is essentially it's called the multiple sequence alignment. And what I'm doing here is I'm actually taking the individual genome sequences of the viruses from each of these individuals. So each passenger or individual is, is basically a row. And what we're doing here is we're looking for where are the, uh, what we call the, the uh, single nucleotide variants, where are the mutations? And what you see basically colored in, in, in vertical red and black lines, those are the mutations across all of those in, individual patients. Um, and so what's interesting is in the study, if you look here, I also color basically different, um, different colors corresponding to uh, patients who have different strains or different lineages of the virus based on their pattern of mutations. So to give you an idea, there was actually a Solano County cluster. So I, I don't know if you remember from March, but there was a, a report of a case in Solano County that was the very first case of community transmission. In other words, transmission where we don't know where it came from. Com the very first case of community transmission in the United States was actually reported from Solano County in February. Um, and if you look here, um, what had happened with this little cluster is that the, the patient had, um, the, we, don't, we don't know where the patient got, the first patient got infected, but she uh, it was ended up being admitted to a hospital. And from there, um, inadvertently, the two healthcare workers were infected with her strain. And you can see, we were able to show that as you can see in kind of the orange color there. Um, and they have this one highlighted mutation. It's sort of like in the middle of the genome. You can see that there are basically three, um, they, they have one common mutation. It turns out to be a C, 
C9924T mutation. But you can see that one mutation is enough to define the entire cluster. So this is how this is how powerful this technique is because a single mutation in the virus, a single one of those red lines can can actually enable you to to basically classify where the virus came from. Uh, so to give you another example, when we actually looked at the the the, uh, the virus from the patients from the cruise ship, the Grand Princess, you can see here that they all have, and, and this is kind of the cluster on the top. They all have three red vertical lines. You can see all in common. Uh, nearly all of them have three red vertical lines. And that's because those are the three, the vertical lines are the three mutations that define a lineage called the WA1 lineage. Now, WA1 stands for Washington State. The WA1 lineage is the lineage corresponding to the very first case of coronavirus, uh, SARS coronavirus 2 diagnosed in the US, which was reported from Sonomish County in Washington State in January, I believe January 17th. But uh, that, that patient, uh, the very first patient infected individual in the US that was reported had WA1. But if you look, um, the Grand Princess, less than a month later, we were able to identify that individuals who were infected aboard the Grand Princess, they all ended up having the WA1 lineage. And subsequently, we were able to show that, you know, the, it's, the virus didn't spread by going to Washington State first. It was just identified in Washington State first. What had happened was that the virus was already cryptically spreading throughout the probably the West Coast. And it's been reported later that uh, there have been several cases that were, that were diagnosed earlier from British Columbia, uh, from Los Angeles now, um, from Irvine, from Northern California, from Washington State, and from Oregon. Um, so what had happened was there, had, there, there was ongoing cryptic introduction from probably from Wuhan, China, and other Asian countries of the virus. And it sort of like, and we're able to sort of track exactly how it entered. Um, I just want to briefly go through this. This is a kind of a, 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 neat, a kind of a neat method that we actually adapted to do very rapid uh, viral genome sequencing. So the, the idea behind this, we developed a technique in the laboratory called clinical metagenomic next-generation sequencing. So the general idea about it is uh, what you want to do is you just want to sequence all of the DNA and RNA in the sample. And by doing so, we can, we can pretty much identify any pathogen. So we're developing this as a diagnostic test for infections. You can potentially diagnose any virus, bacterium, fungus, or parasite just by doing metagenomic exterior sequencing. What we did is we tweaked it a little bit. We added like specific primers to sort of um, to SARS coronavirus 2 to force it to be able to detect SARS coronavirus 2, to enrich, to enrich the sequencing library for SARS coronavirus 2. But the benefit of doing this is not only can we identify SARS coronavirus 2, but we can identify co-infections. So we were able to identify, for instance, a patient who was infected with SARS coronavirus 2 plus a rhinovirus, the cause of the common cold, or SARS coronavirus 2 plus meningomavirus or plus influenza virus. So we were able to show that we can identify co-infections using this technique. But, it, but the, the primary purpose of doing this was to get full genomes for doing this type of analysis. So this is another way of looking at it. We looked at a total of, I believe, 29 samples. And what you see here is individually colored are different lineages or different strains. And you can see here that there were no less than about, there were about um, eight different strains that were introduced into Northern California. 
and if you look here, the WA1 lineage that I talked about from the uh, Washington State, uh, originated from Washington State, or actually the first case was described in Washington State, was actually the cause of the Grand Princess cruise ship. You also see that there are some kind of brown colored um, section, sections of the pie in other counties. And what, what's interesting is that we were able to correlate kind of the cruise ship passengers when they disembarked, um, you know, some of them disembarked back and they went back to their home in Marin County and Sonoma County. And some of these additional infections were actually, were related to the cruise ship um, passengers. So that's shown with the asterisk. You can see that these are secondary infections where they went home and they um, inadvertently infected, um, uh, you know, a household member or a family member. Um, and if what's also interesting is that you also see this, uh, what we call the European lineage at the time, which is which, which now redefined as a D614G lineage. And I'll talk a little more about that in, in, in subsequent slides. Uh, but in short, we identified no, no fewer than eight different strains that entered all of the different counties. We had, uh, notably, um, we, I've already talked about the Solano County strain or the Santa County cluster. There was a really uh, interesting Santa Clara County cluster. And I have, we have some more data that I'll show you, which is unpublished on the Santa Clara County cluster, which is actually quite interesting because much of our data actually is, um, is, is uh, uh, we have a lot of data having worked very closely with the Santa Clara County Pub Department of Public Health. And we also have many, we also identified, as I said before, many cases in the uh, WA1 lineage. Uh, but this gives you kind of a little history of the WA1 lineage um, and kind of how, um, so, if you recall, the first case of the novel coronavirus in the United States, that was WA1. That was reported January 19th. Um, but then we identified in March 9th, and I actually, I actually tweeted that out. <laughs> um, that's probably the new way of communicating um, instant science findings, although you know, obviously not peer-reviewed. Um, but, but I ended up tweeting the information that uh, basically the Grand Princess passengers were all WA1. Um, subsequently, it was also published by a group in Yale from Yale that WA1 had not only gone to um, Washington State in California, but also it had been in Connecticut. So there was actually coast-to-coast -coast spread, and this was all cryptic. I mean, nobody knew about it uh, in, in January and February. Um, and uh, it, it's also been reported in our companion paper that um, essentially WA1 had been transmitted transmitting in Washington State for for actually several, for two months uh, probably. And it had turned out that at the time when they were sampling this in, in March the 2nd, they actually found that 90% of the strains that they were sequencing were WA1. Um, so that really suggests that this was a virus, this particular strain or lineage, you know, penetrated our communities, um, you know, in, in Washington state and California quite deeply. Um, so um, this is uh, kind of some information that was obtained by genomic sequencing. And uh, this is uh, the other case of the Solano County cluster where uh, this was associated with the first possible case of community transmission of the coronavirus in the United States. Um, but I want to talk about, I want to move to kind of the next step is like, what are the dynamics though of, and, and this is why we now have kind of the advantage of longitudinal sampling, meaning that we not only can like know how a virus entered or how strains of the virus entered California and perhaps entered in this in particular case, Santa Clara County, but we wanna understand, for instance, what, were, what, were the, what was the fate? What happened to these lineages? And, and um, so what's very interesting is that there was, a, there was an article that was published in Cell um, and this is a really interesting article. It basically 
describes the development of one particular strain called the D614G lineage. And it's called D614G because that's the amino acid change. Um, it's actually also kind of A23403, um, an A to a C change. Uh, but what, what it ends up doing, what's important about that particular mutation is that's a mutation in the spike protein of the virus. Now, the spike protein of the virus, that's, the, that's actually what the protein that the virus uses to, to enter human cells. It needs the cells to be infectious, to actually infect human, to infect human cells. It needs this particular protein. Um, and the other thing that's interesting about this D614G, so the D614G, at least on the left, is, is basically all of the, the, the numbers that you see highlighted in blue, colored in blue. If you look there, what's interesting is that the D614G, that mutation did not arise in, in China or Asia or even the United States. It actually was thought to have begun in Germany. So this was when we had the very earliest cases in Germany in January. Um, and from there, if you recall, there was a huge outbreak in Italy and in Spain as well in early March. And from there, um, and shortly afterwards in mid-March, there was a huge outbreak in New York. Um, what's interesting is that more than 90% of all of the viruses that were responsible for the early European outbreaks and in the large New York outbreak, they're all D614G. So, so we didn't see the diversity or, or at least kind of the, the extent of the diversity of, of, that we saw in Northern California. We, we had a few D614G strains, but very few of them. Um, and, and, but we didn't see the diversity that, that um, uh, we, we, we didn't see the diversity in New York and in Europe that we saw in California. And so what, it, and what, is, what has happened is that subse subsequently, it turns out that over time, the D614G has sort of evolved or, or has like um, the lineage or this particular strain has evolved to now be the vast majority of all strains. In other words, now more than 95% of all circulating viruses are D614G. And so, so that's quite interesting given that uh, at the beginning, for instance, it was less than 5% of our strains as of March. And, but if you look here that you can see that very quickly uh, it changed. So if you look on the um, kind of this graph on the upper left, this is a graph over time from basically January to May. And this is taken from the cell paper that describes D614G. You can see here that uh, pretty much we did not have D614G, uh, significant amounts of D614G, at least not until, um, until past May. Um, and I'll show you some more data later. Um, and in fact, we did have a very small cluster of D614G. Um, so that's really interesting. Um, now, it turns out that the small cluster of blue that you see there, that those were actually genomes that we did not sequence. Uh, you know, we ended up sequencing, uh, this is the, the Biohub and UCSF, we ended up sequencing everything that you see there pretty much in orange. We didn't sequence any of the blue. Now, when, it turned, when I did some further investigation, I found out that the, the sequences in blue, they were actually sequenced in Palo Alto by Stanford. And it turns out that they were sequencing not the um, Santa Clara population, which is a primarily, um, you know, Latinx, uh, Hispanic population and kind of a more um, uh, essential workers. And it's also a Asian and a it's kind of a very multicultural, multi-ethnic population. Uh, they were primarily sampling kind of returning travelers. And so it's quite interesting that uh, when, when, it, when less than 20 miles away, when they were sequencing, um, 
you know, individuals who, are, who lived in Santa Clara, but who clearly had different exposures. These were returning travelers from New York and Europe. And, and, and understandably, um, you know, many of them, or in fact, all of them in this case, had D614G. So it's, it's quite interesting. And, and if you actually go to the kind of some further work that we're doing, so this is a study where we're not only trying to identify uh, sequences, different lineages that entered Santa Clara, but we want to know what happened to those lineages. And um, so, so to give you some idea, this is uh, one example of, um, we, we um, this is one finding that we made. You, you may have heard about that there was some, so, there was some information that there were some, the first two deaths that were known to be caused by COVID in the US were, um, were reported from Santa Clara. And these, these were diagnoses that were made posthumously after the patient had already died because it was actually shown by an autopsy. Uh, we were able to show uh, that the first two deaths were actually due to WA1, the WA1 lineage. And again, this is by sequencing the genome. Uh, but, I all, but this is a kind of a more involved slide, which basically shows we basically systematically tracked how the lineages changed over time um, in Santa Clara and how they were introduced. And in this case, we were able to show that there were 16 lineages, 16 lineages of the virus entered Santa Clara in, um, in March, uh, between January and March. Um, and I don't really want to go too much in, in detail about it. Uh, suffice it to say that in addition to the other lineages that we've been talking about, WA1, Solano County, the SEC1 lineage, um, we also identified other lineages like SEC2, SEC3, but I want to highlight the D614G. That's the lineage highlighted that in, in, in pink. And if you actually look in, you can see that there are two cases in uh, February 29th of the D614G lineage. Um, those cases are actually the, um, uh, the first two cases uh, of D614G in the U.S. that were ever identified. So, so this was actually even before the New York outbreak. Um, this was in late February. So before we knew of like all of this um, transmission or all of these cases coming in from Europe, um, you know, we, this, this, we were able to identify, you know, one of these D614 lineages. And it seems to me a little unfortunate that we, um, that, uh, you know, we, we were, our, our sites were really from a public health standpoint, we were really focused more on, not on um, the, uh, not on the threat pretend on the virus coming from from Europe, but really, it was really the virus coming from Asia or China, and it seems like in in hindsight, it turns out that 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 it, that was probably not where most of our cases, uh, most of the cases that at least that were persistent, came from. It seemed like the virus was pretty much introduced from Europe. I mean, I think that's the conclusion now, um, which is made. So this gives you another idea of what happened: is that we were able to identify, you know, a lot of kind of very early lineages that entered. Santa Clara County, you know, in February, March, January, uh, and but but by April, um, you know, essentially uh, they were, um, you know, even by April they were still kind of very early lineages. But by by the time you came around with May, you started seeing this D614G spike mutation. And if you look here, as of August, 100% of all sequence viruses was D614G. So in other words, um, you can look at it from maybe a positive angle in stating that our public health interventions, now we were, we, uh, Gavin, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom instituted a lockdown in March 19th. The public health interventions, the shutdown, uh, you know, the rapid, um, the rapid uh, institution of, um, of social distancing policies as well as mask wearing, I think it probably had an effect because we were able to stop 
you know, 16 uh, lineages from, from being persistent. I mean, we just, we just were unable to stop D614G, but, but it really, it really suggests that, and this is kind of looking at the, um, looking at this from a positive angle, this really suggests that using contact tracing, that standard tools of epidemiology and really public health interventions and kind of even kind of the, uh, kind of all of the measures that we take to prevent spread, um, some of the individual measures that we use to take spread, I mean, they are effective. I mean, I think this is really highlights it in, in, in that at least in this county, it didn't appear that any lineage persisted except for D614G. And, and really, the, and subsequently, I was able to show that it wasn't as if the February and March D614G strains persisted and then, you know, became blossomed into like large peaks in June, July, August. What had actually happened was even those D614 lineages in February and March, they, they died out. I was able to show through genomic sequencing that they died out. And the, the reason you see a peak in June, July, August is because of new introductions from elsewhere. You know, it, it could be from other parts of California, from other parts of the US, from travel. So essentially these are new introductions and not community widespread of an existing lineage. And this gives you an idea of, of, of what it looked like. So you see here that we had a lot of different lineages um, showed by the different colors. And I'm only showing you actually the, the five major ones, but you can see here that the different colors, we had a lot of lineages introduced in March um, but, you know, as of April, like all of them, except for th there was like an, there was an A12557G. I, I don't want to talk too much about it. It caused a huge outbreak at a sniff. And that's why you kind of see the orange line go up, peak up in April. But, but overall, the lineages went down. And in fact, even D614G went down. And then you start seeing a rise again in, in a huge peak in July. And essentially, from June onwards, essentially close to 100% of all sequences um, are D614G, and, and they're probably due to new introductions. Uh, but well, what that suggests to me, though, is that public health interventions work. Individual methods are likely to work as long as we're able to kind of control kind of introductions of new strains or ongoing introductions of the virus. Uh, this is another way of looking at it. This was an interesting study that we did at UCSF, again, using genomics. And the idea here is we wanted to identify among all of our patients at UCSF, among all of the early patients who had COVID-19, how did they get it? And what was quite interesting is that 43% of them where it was associated with travel. I mean, like, you know, nearly um, more than a third of cases were because of travel. And what's interesting is the travel was, as I said before, and this was in early March, the travel was not from Asia. 5% were from Asia. I think there were like one or two. Um, they, were, they came from Europe, New York, and, and the USA. And when we looked at other places in the USA, they were like Los Angeles. It was, uh, you know, a, um, a returning traveler. She had, she had gone in business in New York, and she went to, New, she went to LA, and then came back to San Francisco and, 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 be, and understandably was infected with the D614G. So we really feel that, uh, that essentially that the acceleration of COVID-19 cases in San Francisco, as well as pretty much everywhere else in the United States, was due to the introduction from Europe and New York. And it wasn't really probably not due to uh, you know, transmission from Asia. It seemed like many of those strains were successfully extinguished. Um, and I also want to show you um, some, another example to highlight kind of the importance of infection control measures and public health measures. This is a study that we did with Laguna Honda Hospital. So Laguna Honda Hospital is the largest skilled nursing facility in, um, 
um, in, in, in basically in the, um, in San Francisco. And so the idea behind this is we were able to show that we, we identified that these were all the, the Santa Clara County one. So it's highlighted in purple, the Santa Clara County one SCC one lineage. Uh, it was the cause of this outbreak. And, and the only thing I really want to say about this is that they were able to conv confine the, so this is a huge hospital, but they were able to confine the, the cases down to like 10 cases or fewer in one unit. And that was because they, in, they instituted widespread testing measures, quarantine, isolation, and, and really, um, you know, pu uh, infection control measures were put into place. And I think it really highlights kind of the importance of infection control, that you can use it as a way to, um, to uh, potentially halt an outbreak. Um, I also want to give you another example. This is um, in, in Los Angeles. So Los Angeles and Southern California and San Bernardino, you know, their experience was way different than what we experienced in Northern California. You can see here, this was during in March and April, again, when you saw kind of the huge number of cases in Southern California. Now, um, I believe that Southern California has, you know, roughly 10 times the number, had number 10 times the number of cases as Northern California. But you can see here that it was all due to D614G. This is a large um, cluster of more than, we sequenced more than 86 patients. And if you look here, uh, this is, these are all patients at one skilled nursing facility. So one hospital uh, or hospital-like setting. And you can see here that they're all D614G and it was explosive growth uh, of these clusters of D614G strains in Southern California. And in fact, we didn't see the diversity um, in, uh, in Southern California that we, that we see in Northern California. Um, our group, UCSF, is actually part of the SPHERES consortium. This is actually a CDC-initiated consortium to do surveillance. And what we've been doing is we've not only been, um, and the Biohub at UCSF is doing this as well, but we not only um, produce these genomes, but the goal is to make these publicly available as soon as they're sequenced. So the data is, subs is, is immediately made available. It's provided directly to public health agencies, and it's our hope that we'll continue to do surveillance. We're now actually working with nine different uh, Northern California and Southern California public health departments uh, in doing essentially genomic surveillance uh, that I've uh, described and previously described. Um, and this is really an unprecedented um, sort of consortium of academia, nonprofits and industry um, for actually developing um, the, the kind of these genomic sequencing efforts and methods. Okay, I want to end by briefly talking about, because I know that we have very little time left, about novel host-based diagnostic for SARS coronavirus 2. So the idea behind this is, as I said before, we want to not only diagnose disease, but can we predict severity? Can I potentially predict who's going to go on to develop severe illness, pneumonia, and may die of the illness? So the idea here is we want to identify diagnostic and prognostic biomarkers of COVID-19 disease from nasal swabs and from blood. We want to look, uncover differential genes and pathways that are involved to maybe give us some insight into pathogenesis. You know, how is COVID-19 causing disease? Ultimately, the goal of this is to develop and validate host response-based assays that can be used to, to monitor patients and predict severity. So one idea is to use what we call um, uh, a liquid, uh, basically uh, do it like uh, look at uh, free cell-free DNA. So the idea behind cell-free DNA now, um, I'm talking about in this case of host DNA, so human DNA, cell-free DNA from the patient. So the idea behind this is that we know that 
when tissues get injured, so let, let's say you have like a hepatitis and your, your liver, let's say, is inflamed. We know that as cells die and as the liver becomes inflamed, um, that what happens is the, the dying cells or the dead cells will end up releasing DNA and uh, they'll, they'll end up releasing DNA into the blood. And the idea is that we can, by measuring the DNA in the blood, by doing sequencing, we can determine where did the DNA come from? Uh, what's interesting is that different tissues have what they call different methylation patterns. They have different methylation changes, the addition of a methyl group to, to the DNA sequence. They have different patterns of methylation that will enable us to specifically identify where did it come from. So the general idea behind this is this is a way that we can do what we call liquid biopsy. You may, have you may have heard of the idea of liquid biopsy in cancer, where we can, for instance, get some blood and be able to diagnose where is your cancer coming from or what kind of tumor do you have? Well, this is a similar idea. We want to be able to get a, some blood from you and be able to determine you know, what tissue, what organ do you have, what, what's injured in your body? You know, is it the lung, which you might expect from some from a respiratory virus, or are there other? And do these cell-free DNA uh, sequences are they potential biomarkers of severe disease? In other words, do we see differential patterns of the cell-free DNA such that we can determine or classify you as having severe COVID versus no symptoms at all versus very mild symptoms. So that's a general idea here. And this is a collaboration with the, the UN lab at Cornell University. But the idea behind this is that we collaborated on identifying doing cell-free DNA sequencing from blood from various patients. We had patients who are SARS-CoV-2 positive, who are infected with other RNA viruses, uh, who, are, who are infected over time, who were treated with lapinavir and ritonavir, which is Kaletra. You know, at the time we didn't have um, remdesivir or, or antibody therapy. We didn't really have any therapy that we knew was effective. So we were using HIV medications in the hope that they might be, they might, they might be effective. And so, um, but the idea behind it is that they were able to find out and we were able to find out that we can identify biomarkers of COVID associated damage. And in fact, we actually were able to identify two specific tissues, the erythroblasts, which are basically the blood cells, as well as the um, liver tissue. And it seemed like the blood cells and liver tissue, they were predictive of those patients who were critically ill or who become critically ill. And in fact, we were able to show that if you had inflammation or if you had detectable uh, cell-free DNA, the amount of cell-free DNA was proportional to how severely ill you were. And so our, our idea is, can we leverage this into a test? I would love to have a test where you admit a patient who you're afraid might become worse or might become better. Uh, and the idea would be, you know, can I run this test on these patients? And I can identify the subset of patients, the 20 to 30% of patients who will go on to develop severe disease or who get worse. Um, and we, we're, use, we're hoping to use this and developing this into, a, into a, a specific blood test that can be used to, to, a, to identify that. Um, I also want to look at the other aspect. So this is looking not, not at blood, but looking at nasal swabs. And, but it's you know, also looking at blood, but the focus on nasal swabs. Can we do the same thing, but can we look at, instead of human DNA, can we look at human RNA? And I want to really briefly go through this data. Um, this, the only purpose of this is called a signaling pathway model, a signaling pathway sort of uh, list, where I basically show, I think the take-home message here is that the pattern that you see of host response pattern is really different from influenza and from bacterial sepsis. So other diseases that can mimic SARS coronavirus 2, they can be easily distinguished on the basis of the host response. 
Um, but, and we were also able to show that you can identify more um, heightened or augmented host responses in patients who are more severely ill. So it gets into the same idea. Can I do a host response-based assay that can then identify who is more sick and who is less sick on the basis of a, of a, of a clinical test? And so ultimately what we did is we developed a, a diagnostic test. We are able to show that we could actually get uh, more than 90% accuracy and be able to diagnose whether or not you have SARS coronavirus 2, whether you have another viral infection or whether you have something else, um, uh, we can diagnose that disease or whether you have bacterial sepsis, for instance, we can diagnose whether or not you have disease with more than 90% accuracy on the basis of the host response. We don't even need to actually test for the virus. We can base it on how you as a patient responded to the infection. But I wanna take the next step, which is, um, so this, is, this test now has about an 86% accuracy. But what I wanna say that we're taking it to the next level. And the idea is to develop the DNA biomarkers and RNA biomarkers I explained to predict severity. Can you actually put this on a rapid platform? So we're collaborating with a, with a well-known company, Luminex, it's a diagnostic company. They have a Combinati instrument that we've now placed in the laboratory in the clinical lab. And the idea is to run this test and to be able to look for host response and be able to use that test to guide doctors into hopefully being able to predict who's going to develop more severe disease, who, who, has, who, is, higher at, who is at higher risk uh, who you might want to prioritize with respect to drugs and treatments. Um, and so the idea is, you know, can, can this information, can this uh, diagnostic testing provide actionable results? So I want to end there. I want to thank all of the members of my lab shown there on the left who were involved in the work. Uh, there are too many to kind of contribute to them. Uh, to some extent, all of them were involved in, in the work. I would just simply point out Wayne Dang, who a postdoc in my lab, who did uh, nearly all of the genomics work, and um, Diana Ng, who is in charge of the host response study. Um, the, uh, I want to also acknowledge uh, our members of the UCSF Clinical Micro Lab, who are um, uh, very closely involved with many of these diagnostic studies, the Abate Lab for their um, digital droplet PCR, uh, numerous collaborators at UCSF, um, collaboration with Mammoth Biosciences, um, and, and as well as collaborators with the uh, County Department of Public Health. So I show you there the chiefs of all the counties that we worked with um, and the CDC, as well as um, support from um, the, uh, I should acknowledge support as well from an innovative Genomics Institute grant from UC Berkeley to study COVID-19 um, and from the um, uh, Charles and Helen Schwab uh, Foundation. And thank you very much. And I'd be happy to take any questions. Charles, thank you so much. I mean, that was so uh, elegant and informative and uh, reflects uh, the work of, of not only yourself, obviously, but so many. And we, on behalf of all of us uh, at UCSF and the community, I really thank you for all of that. Um, we do have uh, several questions. Um, uh, maybe we can start with the virus and I mean the, te the diagnostic testing. Uh, and and the, I think the thing that most people want to know is when will when will this come into play? When can we use it in our schools, in our home, in our clinics? And and I'll add, what are some of the obstacles? What what do you see as uh, things that are standing in the way for this to happen in the next month or two? Yeah, it, it, it's a great question. Um, I can tell you that one of the, um, we are about to launch, I would say in the next two to three weeks, we actually will launch, as I said before, the, this pilot study where we're going to run this, um, we're going to run this assay 
um, on uh, faculty and students and um, childcare facility um, members, you know, both uh, children and and um, and caretakers um, as well as teachers. So the idea here is that we want to do this for surveillance. Um, so these are. We're not for diagnosis, but for surveillance. So these, um, they will each individual will get, will get tested twice a week. We'll mm -hmm. be getting saliva. We're using this as a pilot study, but the idea is that if this is successful, it will then be expandable to essentially other groups and other uh, agencies. Um, I, I should also mention that I am collaborating with the California Department of Public Health, and it's our plan that the uh, public health agencies be equipped with this assay. So we've actually shared the assay under a material transfer mm -hmm. agreement with the California Department of Public Health and the San Francisco Department of Public Health. So the goal is, um, you know, this could be expanded. I think we have to really begin with, um, uh, you, were, you had a question about kind of the challenges. I think a key challenge is one, one is we simply have to show that this works in a pilot study. You know, does it work in a more limited extent before we can then expand to widespread testing? I think the second key challenge though is going to be kind of um, the, the challenge of, it's, it's not really the assay itself, but the key challenge is simply, how do you handle the samples? We're, we're not equipped from a public health perspective of, of simply like handling like 100,000 samples. We can't do it. I mean, it's, it's simply, simply, for instance, just um, accessioning them, just putting them into a database, being able to generate an automated results report. I mean, this takes a huge amount of, of of effort and the infrastructure is not really in place to, to basically report results from you know ten thousand individuals because we're not we're not simply using this to diagnose disease in patients uh, we're really using this as for for um, asymptomatic surveillance in the population so I think a huge challenge is is not only developing it, it really becomes it, it shifts from the assay itself. Uh, because I think that that's pretty straightforward. I mean, I, I think we have an essay that works. Other groups have had assays, assays that work. Now the, for instance, the saliva direct assay, which was developed by Yale, but that was used quite successfully in screening uh, NBA players to allow the NBA season, basketball season to continue. Um, so I think that the assays are going to work and I think that they do work. The challenge is in how do we set the, how do we establish the critical infrastructure to support that, the reporting, uh, the accessioning and the um, the storage of data and the collection uh, infrastructure that we really need to support the assets. Maybe um, before we leave testing, I could just pick uh, ask a more clinical question because uh, uh, patients ask uh, these kind of questions all the time, of course, in terms of antigen testing, antibody testing. And another question I get a lot is uh, some of is the, the role of testing and uh, asymptomatic people who need a test for travel or some other reason, and given the low prevalence of the disease and the lack of specificity of some of the tests, could you help us walk through some of that thinking as an individual? And, and, it's a very complicated question. I mean, I can tell you like hundreds of people have been, we've, we've been debating this for several months. Um, I think there are a few take-home messages. One, one is that we know that, uh, we know that there's a relatively high asymptomatic um, infection rate. And we know that there's also asymptomatic transmission, which, which is really kind of the basis for, um, for why there's a need for doing surveillance, because you, you can't rely on symptoms. Um, if you just test patients who have symptoms, well, you, you know, you're, you're going to miss a huge am an amount of asymptomatic transmission. So I, I think that the take-home message is that we definitely do need to do surveillance. We need to look at populations, but, but as you alluded to, it's challenging because, you know, as you alluded to, these are very low risk, low prevalence uh, populations. I mean, the, the, I mean you, you would be, 
Like in, in, pa in patients who are asymptomatic, for instance, especially like in the Bay Area, the, the, uh, the percentage of positives is it could be easily less than 0.1%, for instance. Uh, so like we're talking like one in a thousand. So as you alluded to, then the test has to be exquisitely sent specific. Um, otherwise, I mean, it has to be somewhere on the order. It can't be 99% specific, which we normally would think is great. It would have to be 99.9% .9 or 99.99% specific. So I think it's the challenges in developing those kinds of tests. I don't think they exist yet. Um, I do think that if we move to, a, say, a CRISPR method, as I said before, that's what made CRISPR so attractive because it's incredibly specific. So it might be really, really useful for this kind of surveillance. Um, with regards to the role of antibody testing, I think that the consensus is eventually growing that we may not necessarily need to have antibody testing in the future. It still remains to be seen how useful antibody testing is. One is that antibody testing can tell you whether you were infected before. I mean, so it's good to know, right? I mean, I mean, you know, it's good, it's good to know whether you were infected, say, last month. Um, you know, on the other hand, it doesn't really it doesn't really do anything with respect. It's not clinically actionable. I mean, you're not going to do anything on the basis of a positive or negative antibody test. I think that's the reason. Now, some people have, have basically speculated that perhaps it might be useful, for instance, in monitoring, for instance, response to vaccines. So if that, that is true. It might be useful perhaps to see whether or not you had um, an, an, an a, de a detectable response or a robust response to the vaccine once it becomes available. It also has been used as a way to potentially has been thought of, it might be used as a way to screen for uh, donors for convalescent plasma, which is still sort of controversial as a treatment. But, but if you wanna identify uh, you know, patients uh, to provide convalescent plasma to, to hopefully help other patients. Well, I mean, it, it does make sense to try to identify the patients who have the highest level of antibodies um, because that, that's a whole idea of passive transfer of antibodies uh, to, to other patients. But, but I think with respect to actually diagnostic testing in the future, I mean, it, it's still debatable whether or not we're going to need antibody testing at all. Uh, and, and, and the reason I say so is that, you know, we, we've had like flu for many, for decades, and yet we, we don't have an antibody test. We never test for antibodies to flu. So the key question is, you know, how durable is the vaccine going to be and how durable are antibody responses to natural infection? If it, if it turns out that they're extremely durable, like in the case of, say, measles, for instance, I mean, the, 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 then, then actually antibody testing becomes useful. But if it turns out that SARS coronavirus is sort of like more like influenza, where the, the protection is only transient or only for a period of time, and so far there's some data to suggest that, then antibody testing is going to be much less useful. I think so. So the question is simply going to be, you know, in, in, what, in what category is, um, you know, COVID-19 going to be? I think ultimately, if we can, if we can manage to prevent this from becoming a seasonal virus, simply eradicating it completely, then I think antibody testing would be important because antibody testing would be a good way that we can sort of like identify the remaining pockets of infection. So, you know, for instance, if we can bring it down to say where China is, where they're only like, you know, at, at most like 100 cases or New Zealand or Iceland or, or other countries that have virtually completely controlled the virus, then, then I think then antibody testing would have a greater role. Uh, let me oh, ask and then your last question about antigen testing. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of concerns about antigen testing because of the specificity. Uh, and I'm also a little worried about sensitivity with antigen testing. It is on average uh, pro probably less sensitive. Uh, there, there has been a, still a lot of debate about that because there, there is an issue of that you could be infected 
but you, uh, you may not have high enough titers to be infectable. So the question is, you know, whether or not you need to use the most sensitive tests. The, 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 from that standpoint, then antigen testing might be okay, because I think it, I think it, it can identify nearly all of the individuals who would potentially transmit it, the disease. So even if you have false negatives, it, it's not going to hurt you. Uh, on the other hand, um, I do have concerns about the specificity of antigen testing. Uh, and again, because, because having false positives is, is going to be a large number of false positives is going to be a problem. A question about uh, um, the uh, the virus. You talked about uh, uh, with all the mutations, are, what is the likelihood of not just increasing infectivity, but increasing uh, seriousness of the infection? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I didn't specifically mention it, but uh, but so far there's no data whatsoever to suggest that any of the mutations that have emerged so far have any effect on severity of infection. Um, in other words, there is no there's no no data supporting that. So, so to the best of our knowledge, we, we don't think that the virus has mutated to become either more virulent, more deadly, or less virulent, less deadly. On the other hand, with the, specifically with the D614G, it appears to be a mutation that appears to stabilize the spike protein. So we have some data, so this has been reported by others, we have some data in vitro that if you take the D614 drain, strain and you infect cells, they will, it will more easily enter cells and it produces higher viral loads in infected patients. Um, so what, what that suggests to me is, and there's also epidemiologic reasons, you know, why is it that there may be some sort of selection effect where D614, is, is the reason we see D614G everywhere is that's predominant strain is, it may be because it's being transmitted more easily. And so there is some, um, in vitro data to support that and some epidemiologic data support that. So there may be a difference in transmissibility, but so far we've seen no difference in severity. Uh, we have a terrific, uh, very optimistic question uh, for you. Maybe not so optimistic, but at least uh, cup half full question for you. If on January 22nd, uh, there's a new director of HHS and uh, and the NIH's funding is increased, um, what sort of aspirational Ideas do you have if uh, you can get increased funding and support from uh, from the federal government and other funders? No, that's a great, great question. So, if I were in a position to to um, my, my personal opinion would be that we we have to continue making um, you know basically making full effort to develop a vaccine. I, I do think that, um, you know, like natural infection is, 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 is not even an option. I mean, here we, we need to develop a vaccine. Um, my worry though, is that even with an effective vaccine or even a partially effective vaccine, even with the vaccine, we're still gonna have cases. Um, and, you know, it may be, it's certainly possible that vac the vaccine is gonna be transient. Uh, we do know that the period of, dur of durability of vaccine, how long a vaccine is effective against other coronaviruses, for instance, it, it varies, but, but it's typically on the order of maybe, uh, you know, months to say two years. It's not something which is lifelong. So, so um, and, and I think that we can, it's very likely that we may be expecting the same thing with SARS coronavirus too. You know, that being said, um, I do think that it's really going to end up being a, a public health effort to actually get rid of the virus. I mean, I can, I can tell you that other, other countries have been successful. I mean, they, they brought their cases down to, I mean, you have like, um, you know, China has, you know, more than like 1.3 billion people and they only have like 50 cases. So th th this really suggests to me that, you know, we, we are able with public health interventions alone, we don't necessarily need a vaccine. We just need to have a concerted public health in, in, uh, 
um, a public health effort on in every level at every level. We, we need individuals. We need local officials. We need local institutions. Uh, we need it at the state level and the federal level. They have to be. We have to work in concert. I mean, as we've shown through like uh, the case with Santa Clara. I mean, it, it, it's great that we could get rid of 16 lineages from Santa Clara, but th th there's no point in getting rid of it if the neighboring county still has, you know, if, if lineages can continue, strands can continue coming in from neighboring counties or neighboring states. So uh, we're really in this all together. And it, it doesn't make sense for me, uh, to, at least from, from my standpoint, it doesn't make sense to have like, um, to have like completely different public health policies in different states. I think it, there needs to be some level of consistency in, in sort of statewide or federal uh, mandates with respect to being able to control this outbreak. Fantastic. On behalf of all of us, uh, there are over a hundred of us here tonight um, and there'll be uh, thousands more uh, watching on UCTV and on the, uh, in the internet. And we uh, really appreciate, again, not only tonight's presentation, but all the work that you have done. It's really been, quite remarkable and um, it makes us proud that you're a graduate of the medicine residency and our outstanding <laughs> fellowships and uh, that we got you to stay here since people often say UCSF means you can stay forever. And uh, uh, it's really been um, terrific for the whole community to have you um, a, a part of it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.